Alex. Uh, Cassie and I have the joy of leading uh, this little Jesus community. And um, I'll continue to say that regardless of how many people we have show up uh, because it is about being a little Jesus community, being a community of followers. And uh, it's beautiful to think back and say, we've, we've been doing this for a year. We've been gathering week in and week out to proclaim the name of Jesus, to love our city, and to love one another. So our invitation, if you're not a part of that, is join. Well, we are going through the Apostles' Creed this fall, this um, really important uh, doctrine, this really important liturgical poem that's been around pretty much since the beginning. Um, We look at it uh, not necessarily as Scripture, but as a summary of Scripture. It quickly summarizes the big components of our faith. It gives us a full picture of the story of Scripture. It's also a reminder that our story and our church, our faith, is rooted in something ancient. It's rooted in something that has stood the test of time. It's rooted in something that continues to move forward. And it's also a reminder of the allegiance we are pledging to our God, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a pledge of allegiance of sorts, one where we are reminded of who our God is and what he has done for us. That brings us to today's section, which is, he descended to the dead and on the third day he rose again. To diametrically opposed ideas, death and life. And it is in that tension we find ourselves, right? The tension between life and death, a lot happens. The moment from birth to the moment we are put in the ground is everything. There's a a great tension that is at work. We live the entirety of our lives caught between Beauty and brokenness, good and evil, life and death. And it is in that tension between life and death where two disciples have a surprising encounter. Let's look at Luke 24. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 24. We're picking up just after the resurrection encounter. It tells of two disciples who are on their way home from Jerusalem. We pick up in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? And he said to them, Jesus, what things? The Emmaus-bound disciples go on to describe the events of the weekend. The Holy Week celebration of Passover was suddenly, suddenly and violently desecrated 
By the cruel execution of a man they knew and honored extravagantly. While his brutal murder was still burned into their memory bank, rumors began to swirl of two angels and an empty grave. From anguish to bewilderment, their whole world begins to spin out of control. Death has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Spinning the entirety of your life out of control. That Holy Week 2,000 years ago served as a reminder to these two disciples that the weak will always be crushed by the strong. It was a reminder that a Jewish rabbi will not survive a confrontation with the empire. It was a reminder that the wealthy and connected can get away with most anything. It was a reminder that death is undefeated. We live the entirety of our lives in a dangerous world, one that is often more like a war zone than a garden. This morning, I sat in my living room. We have this incredible leather chair in the corner right next to the window. The lights in our living room are low. I have a hot coffee in my hand, and I'm just looking out at the sky as it fades from night, and the new day comes, and I'm spent time in prayer, and it was just this quiet morning, almost sacred. You know those moments? Just of quiet and beauty, and it is not hard to imagine that this world our God created is good. And then I opened my news app. Then I got caught up on the events of the past week. Then I was reminded that we don't live in a garden as much as we live in a war zone. My peaceful morning becomes broken by headlines of violence in our dangerous world. Headlines of death, violence, and evil. I'm once again struck by the uncomfortable tension of the world we live in. Our world and so much of our life is so good and so precious, and yet there's so much brokenness. There's so much death. Not even the Queen of England can escape it. A natural disaster strikes. A random act of violence. A loved one dies. With each headline, with each death, we are reminded of the fragility of our life, of our own mortality, and that the entirety of our life takes place in a dangerous place. Our greatest enemy is death, and death remains undefeated. And like the Emmaus-bound disciples, we journey through this life with shattered hope and aching hearts. Do you know that moment? That moment of walking through life, heart in hand, aching from the pain and the heartbreak that goes on around us. The heartbroken disciples have up until this point dominated the entirety of the conversation as they take turns filling in the timeline, correcting details, and sharing their thoughts. It's at this point that Jesus, who was just simply content to listen, begins his side of the conversation. He says in verse 26, 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus takes up the raw and confusing threads of the disciples' story, and he begins to introduce new threads from the law, from the prophets, from the writings, from the text we call the Old Testament, and he weaves together a story of suffering and glory. Now, we don't have a record of what Jesus said to these Emmaus-bound disciples, but we do have the scriptures that are the prequel to the Jesus story. And so with a goofy illustration, uh, let me ask the question, do you remember the first film of any Star Wars show? Any Star Wars movie? It always starts the same way. Nine Star Wars films open with the phrase, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Follows with a slight change in the screen, revealing the episode number and the subtitle in all capital letters and a three-paragraph summary of the immediate happenings prior to the movie you're about to watch. It's the context. It's the details. It's everything you need to know to understand the events that are about to transpire. Sure, you can probably understand the action. You can probably get the major plot points of the story. But you're going to be missing a lot if you don't catch the context of the story. Without the context, you don't understand how evil the empire is. You don't understand how scrappy the rebels are. You don't understand how long the odds are. Without the details, it's a fragmented story. And Jesus, our master storyteller that he is, takes the disciples' fragmented experiences and he begins to fill in the gaps with the context of Scripture. And in doing so, he hopes that the disciples understand the point of his death and his resurrection. So, if we have any hope of understanding the phrase, he descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. We must look at those same scriptures and recreate the story Jesus told his disciples. Now we have no record of what Jesus said, but we definitely have the text that he started from. And so if you'll allow me a little latitude, I'd like to just try and recreate it a little bit. Because I imagine he begins with the story of creation. Where the creator of heaven and earth speaks and the world comes to life. Set in a garden, the creator fashions man and woman in his image. To humanity, he gives us the task of caring for his good creation. To look at the chaos, to look at the raw materials of the cosmos, and to bring something out of it. We were called to cultivate God's good creation. However, those first humans rupture their relationship with the creator by choosing to trust another. In the Genesis account, this was a lying serpent. In our world, might be the philosophy of the day, the influence of the accuser, or simply our own disordered desires. A good world created by a good God descends into chaos. Now, typically, when we think about what is wrong with the world, we look outwards. 
We say things like, the government is too big or the government is too small. Or we simply say that it is altogether the wrong system. When we look at the wrong in the world, we say things like, people are simply not educated enough. Or we say they're too educated, they're too smart for their own good. When we look at the wrong of the world, we could say there is not enough money being poured into that thing or into this thing. We are quick to identify the problem as out there. But the testimony of Jesus is that the problem starts in here. With the human heart and with the phenomenon called sin. I want to pause in the recreation of the Jesus story to simply and briefly discuss the concepts of sin and death, which, you know, isn't a big deal, right? Sin and death. But I think it's helpful to just pause briefly and talk about these two things that have a lot of religious baggage associated with them. On sin, I think St. Ignatius offers us a helpful definition He says sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Our God's desire for his creation has always been a life of beauty, of justice and love. And it's important to understand that what God deems sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. It's a very different articulation of it than what you may have heard in other places. Sin is not forbidden simply because it should be forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. Similarly, lead-based paint isn't bad simply because someone passed a law. Someone passed a law because lead-based paint will kill you. Similarly, God sets Laws in order to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from the things that will end up killing us. But like the first humans, we are tempted to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And the consequences of our choice to do what is right in our eyes ripples through our relationships. If you're a child of of divorce or of an affair, or the victim of a fractured family, you absolutely understand the fallout of human brokenness. We all have experienced relationships where one person choosing to do what was right in their own lives shatters lives, breaks relationships, and sows death into our community. The fallout of our choice to do what is right in our own eyes is exactly what God predicted in Genesis 2. You will die. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. Now God saying you will die is not simply a punishment or a consequence that he is dealing out. Rather, it is a prediction of what happens when humanity is left to our own devices. This is to say, sin is a punishment on its own. And if we continue in the story, picking up in Genesis 4 through 11, have you ever read this strange portion of Scripture? Genesis 4 through 11 is weird. 
Let me tell you, it is entirely about the consequences of what happens when humanity is left to its own devices. It tells the story of people choosing to do what is right in their own eyes and the devastating consequences on themselves and those around them and creation as a whole. Genesis 4 picks up with a story of sibling rivalry turned into murder. Genesis 4 ends with the story of a man who went on a murderous spree simply because he was insulted or wounded by others. The Genesis account from 4 to 11 is one story after another of human brokenness. Human history itself is rife with examples of the destruction, pain, and violence caused by the corruption buried in our hearts. A perfect governing structure will not cure our greed. A robust education will not cure our selfishness. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say our own personal history is rife with destruction, pain, and heartache, not caused by something out there, but by something caused in here. And death is the outworking of that something wrong in here. Now I know the doctrine of sin and death may seem cruel, unimaginable, or even anti-humanist. But I think it's actually one of the most helpful descriptions of the human condition. God declares that the world we live in is good, that I am good But something has gone very wrong, and now we exist within that tension. Like a kite, we are picked up by the breeze, and then the next moment we crash to the ground. I think the doctrine of sin and death is actually a really helpful description for all that's going on, for all the pain we experience all the brokenness we're surrounded by, all the evil we see in our world. I hope you feel the weight of those texts. I hope you feel the weight of, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Because that's what these texts from Genesis 1 through 11 are meant to incite within us. What are we going to do about this? Because it's pretty clear we can't do very much. We are desperately in need of someone who will save the day. And this is where God begins to act. He identifies a nation that would demonstrate his love to the rest of the world. A people he calls Israel. But like their neighbors and like us, they struggled with the temptation we all face. To do what is right in their own eyes. Set apart but experiencing the same struggle. Israel fails to trust that what God desires for them was simply the good life. From Exodus to Judges, from 1 Samuel to 2 Kings, time and time again, the Israelites go about things in their own way, doing what was right in their own eyes, and the fallout is pain, suffering, violence, and death. Have you picked up the Old Testament recently? It's a page turner, but not for all the right reasons. 
It's one story after another of humans going their own way and God lovingly trying to interject, trying to beckon them to the good life. And at one point, the nation of Israel is in such disrepair that it splits in two. The nation to the south becomes a smoldering ruin. It's people taken into captivity. The northern nations suffering under corrupt rulers and unholy alliances. And it was into this moment of death and suffering that the prophet Isaiah wrote of one sent by God who will lead the people out of the mess they have made for themselves. And I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. The servant who would be sent by God grew up before God. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand, but the fact is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us, we thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did it to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. It was our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bru bruises, we get healed. I imagine that for most of the two-and-a-half-hour walk, that seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, these disciples are intently listening to the stranger explain the story of history. I imagine they hear of the one Isaiah calls the suffering servant, and they lean in because that's who they thought Jesus was. But there's no way God would send a suffering servant to die. There's no way he would send one to redeem us from ourself who would end up on a Roman cross. He was supposed to ride a war horse, horse not be stuck on a cross. I imagine they've had one of the worst weeks of their lives, emotionally drained, brokenhearted, completely confused, but after a two-hour conversation with the stranger, I imagine them feeling a little bit better, if not even hopeful. On their way home, they stopped by a local bakery for the night's dinner and convinced the stranger to stay. And as they prepare a simple meal of bread and maybe some wine, the storytelling stranger makes an unexpected move. The stranger takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. The guest becomes the host. And it is in the breaking of bread that the disciples recognize their traveling companion as none other than the crucified Jesus, who was once dead, but is now alive. It's a resurrection story. And just like that, in the breaking of bread, Jesus disappears. As Luke puts it, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. 
I'm going to be honest. I have no idea how Jesus pulled that Houdini act. I have no idea how he sat down for dinner with these Emmaus-bound disciples, and he breaks bread, and he's gone. I have no idea how he did it. But I do think there's something profound that in the moment of the breaking bread, the disciples' eyes are opened. He who was dead is now alive. They realize that for two and a half hours in their brokenheartedness, in their aching heart, that the Savior of the world took two and a half hours of his time to explain what he was up to. He took a seven-mile walk with his disciples to point out what he was doing and where he was at work. And in the climax, over dinner, he reveals that the story has been reversed. It is not a tragedy, but a victory. On the third day, he rose again. He was dead, but now he is alive. And in resurrection, death is defeated. Worship team, if you would join me. In the resurrection, death is defeated. The Apostle Paul says, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our faith is of no worth. If the grave is not empty, then we 2,000 years later are wasting our time. But in the most monumental of moments that splits history in two, there was life before and now there is life after the defeat of death. Death itself has been reversed in the person of Jesus. Death is now no longer an end, but it is a beginning. And we, as the people of Jesus, are called to practice that resurrection life. Upon the realization that Jesus was back from the dead, these disciples exclaim, did our hearts not burn within us as he talked on the road and while he opened up the scriptures? We live in a dangerous world, one that is often more like a war zone than a garden. We see death all around us. We see it in the headlines. We experience it as a loved one passes. We experience death all the time, and what we end up doing is surrendering to it. We give up. Life loses its color, its beauty, its joy. We settle into a zombie-like monotony of work, Netflix, and death. Life becomes a disenchanted march towards the inevitable. We're all going to die. Might as well make the ride as easy as possible, right? We're still breathing, but we're not really living. You know that feeling? Where you're still breathing, but you're not really living. But Jesus is conquering of death and his invitation into life beckons us to put that old way of living behind us, 
to once again feel the burning in our chest, to feel the beating of our heart and to live in such a way that we bear witness to a power that is stronger than death. We are called to practice resurrection to once again be awakened to the goodness and the wonder of life, to recognize that our world is full of goodness and to assert that there is a life that is stronger than death. We are called to practice resurrection. And if we look at the example of Jesus, we practice resurrection with long walks with good friends. We practice resurrection by checking in on a friend and asking what's been going on and genuinely ready for the response. We practice resurrection by reading, pondering, and teaching the story of Jesus. We practice resurrection by sitting at a table with people we don't know and being ready to be in awe of what they tell us. As I mentioned, these life-giving and life-affirming practices, I'm struck how simple they are. That in the moments after Jesus' defeat of death, he wasn't shouting it from the mountaintops. He decides it's time for a walk with a friend. He decides it's time for a meal with two people who just need to be encouraged. To practice resurrection is simply committing ourselves to actions that affirm life and its sacredness and its preciousness. To work to demonstrate that there is a life that is stronger than death. And that things as ordinary as bread and cup can be symbols of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to the table you sat for us, to take the simple elements of bread and cup, may we be reminded that there is a life stronger than death. that in coming to the table of the Lord, we will be reminded of resurrection life. That we do not worship a savior that is dead, but we declare he is alive and amongst us. That in celebrating the Lord's Supper, We assert that death has been defeated. It's in the name of our King we pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.